Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's groundbreaking book, In This Together, landed on bookstore shelves with a powerful message. When we work together, we can do absolutely anything. Guidance from 40 women leaders with specific strategies to help women advance their careers makes In This Together even more relevant today, especially with the pandemic's impact on women in the workforce. Take your career to the next level with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's In This Together, now available on audiobook. Download your copy today. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go with a group. Folks, this podcast is brought to you by the Real Leaders Impact Collaborative, our once-a-month virtual impact CEO peer groups who meet to support each other with whatever is keeping them up at night. I joined the group back in September, and if I had to say the one major takeaway that I've received is that to not let things outside business affect your on-court performance. This little change has certainly reflected in our business growth and development. And when our members do well, more lives are transformed. That's what impact is all about. So if you're interested, please email us at info at real-leaders.com. Just say the podcast sent you and you want to speak to someone about the impact collaborative. Again, that's info at real hyphen leaders.com. Enjoy the show. In five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is Chairman and CEO of Hannon Armstrong, Mr. Jeff Eckel. Jeff, thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Kevin. So Jeff, uh, being one of the early climate investors, being a pioneer in this space, I think it'd be fair to give our audience a little background about your story, where you come from, and how you got into this space. So please give our audience a little background on Jeff Eggle. Well, thanks, Kevin. And let me start with what Hannon Armstrong does now. Um, we're a investor in climate solutions. We went public eight and a half years ago on the investment thesis that will make better risk-adjusted returns investing on the right side of the climate change line. And for us, that climate change line is neutral to negative on incremental greenhouse gas, gas emissions. Um, anybody who's read the uh, uh, sixth IPCC study knows we are losing badly in this race on climate change. But Hannon Armstrong has been doing this for the better part of 40 years. And uh, I've been with the company almost 30 in two different stints. Um, and I'm very proud of what Hannah Armstrong is doing now. We're investing um, about a billion five, two billion dollars annually in investments, uh, physical assets that are reducing uh, current uh, carbon emissions and reducing uh, uh, harmful greenhouse gas emissions. And I like to tell my daughters I've been doing the same thing my entire life. I was blessed to figure out what I wanted to do when I was 17 and uh, had an environmental theme. Um, I read a book called Diet for a Small Planet uh, by Francis Moore LePay. And I think on page 82, there's a bar chart of uh, BTUs per gram of protein from a cow, a pig, chicken, fish, soybean. Um, and I became a vegetarian then and realized that uh, the efficiency of agriculture and the efficiency of food system was, uh, was crucial for the environment. 
Now, climate change was uh, a scientific, uh, early scientific theory back then. But there are corollary environmental trends, uh, air pollution, water pollution, that are related to the same phenomena as increased carbon pollution. And I was always very sensitive to those. Now, that good idea, and um, a couple degrees later, you um, find yourself entering the job force with uh, uh, high interest rates, high inflation, high unemployment, and having a hard time getting a job. Mm. But uh, the passion always, has always been there for the, um, this environmental thesis of, of doing uh, clean energy investing. So did you first did you first understand that your passion was in uh, this climate change or you wanted to make it change in climate change or was it more from the financial side? Like, where were you when you decided you wanted to pursue a career that could do both? Um, I have uh, an undergraduate degree in political science and a master's in public administration and study energy policy. Um, I've never taken a finance course, never passed an accounting course, um, but I've always known that you need generalist skills to be successful in um, most businesses. And I was blessed early on with some job opportunities where they allowed me to, to run with it. And I did, um, perhaps uh, less fearful than I should be of the unknown and was able to get great on the job experience for, early days in clean energy uh, back in the early 80s. And um, it just stuck. It fit neatly with what I'd read when I was 17. Efficiency matters, pollution's bad. And um, uh, have, you know, had a checkered career through a number of uh, uh, jobs. But at the end of the day, I've uh, now been doing this almost 40 years. So um, it's, it's not a... Um, a linear path, to say the least, a very mm -hmm. circuitous route to uh, the job I have now. And what were the conversations from lead investors in the 80s when you were getting started around solar panels, around the return on their investments if they were to go with renewable energy? So the entire industry really started with the um, first and second Arab oil embargoes in 72 and 78. Um, it was about saving oil. Um, we had we were importing most of our oil, and uh, and when Saudi particularly ratcheted up the price from like two dollars to ten dollars, that nobody had to think about energy in the U.S. before mm -hmm. um, the '70s. And then you had Three Mile Island, the nuclear plant in Pennsylvania, have a meltdown in '78. And all of a sudden, everybody was thinking about energy, and so those those were the uh, the headline events that uh, really created this industry of we have to get off oil and then you know people understood the some of the problems with oil it's never made um, uh, producing countries terribly wealthy uh, the extraction of it is uh, 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 environmentally destructive you had the exxon valdez spill the transportation of its uh, you know, it's, a, it's a pretty tough substance to to move safely so I think that really created the, the backdrop for a clean energy industry. And you had pioneers like Amory Lovins, who's still at it at the, they used to call the Rocky Mountain Institute, um, start to write books called the soft energy paths and things like that. That uh, Dan Jurgen, who won a Pulitzer about the history of oil, uh, also wrote a book called Energy Futures, um, articulating uh, a future 
not on oil, not on nuclear. Um, natural gas wasn't used for power generation back then, very rarely. Um, uh, it was coal. And um, uh, it certainly wasn't easy to make the numbers work for um, uh, clean energy early on. The U.S. government, uh, and Paul Krugman just wrote a great article on this in the, in the Times last week, um, talked about the success of the solar industry today was not an accident, but it was based on very good energy policy at DOE um, and uh, uh, within the federal government, starting in the 70s and 80s, to, to start to develop uh, solar and wind technologies, provide some kind of subsidy because the greatest subsidy of all given energy systems is unpriced carbon. Um, so these low carbon systems uh, need, need some way to uh, balance the, the playing field. But in the 80s, the 90s, 2000s, solar was simply not competitive. Um, you saw very little. We, I did finance, my first project was a solar project in, in the 80s in California that's still operating. Um, terrifically expensive. Um, but you know it worked and uh, paved the way for uh, all of these technologies to continue to drive down their cost. Uh, so there, I'm not sure there was a discussion discussion so much to to get to your question on what was the economic return. They were more experiments in how we could envision a clean energy future. Mm. And and we've seen over time, solar you know energies like solar become much more economic. Uh, the price has gone down. Uh, it's become much more efficient. What bring our audience in, bring in early investors in? What is the process for Hannon Armstrong? What do you specialize? How do you create and, and make a deal happen? Uh, great question. Um, there are a lot of ways to invest um, in this market. You can invest in uh, in a venture uh, stage investment, a private equity stage. You can be a developer, be a manufacturer, and there's great companies and all those, and all of those are essential. What we have focused on is supplying the capital for physical assets that reduce carbon. And a lot of those physical assets are actually quite small, particularly in the energy efficiency area. Lighting, heating, cooling are not big investments. They're not, uh, they're not easy for large institutional investors to invest in. That's what we've been doing for now, you know, 30, 30 plus years, uh, paving the way for scaling small scale, um, uh, small investments into, into much larger investments. The, the process is very similar, uh, simple. We have one screen um, and that is, does it reduce greenhouse gas emissions? Hmm. Um, and if it doesn't, if it increases greenhouse gas emissions, no matter how economic the project is, how need it is, we won't do it. Um, after that, every uh, investment is based on its risk-adjusted returns. And again, getting back to my opening comment that we think we'll make better risk-adjusted returns investing on the right side of that uh, climate change line, um, we, we, are, we are not looking for subsidized returns. We're, we're, we're looking for superior returns investing the way we do. And I think uh, with our, uh, share performance over the last eight years, we have um, uh, begun to prove the investment thesis quite well. Now there's an aspect to this. I mentioned there are a lot of different ways to invest. The hard work is really done by our clients. 
whether it's NG out of Paris, SunPower in California, Johnson Controls, Honeywell, Siemens, Schneider, those, those are all our clients. AES, some great, great global engineering companies. Their job is to develop, engineer, construct, and operate uh, these assets. I've done that, it's hard. Um, and our goal is to uh, make their life just that much easier by understanding their business and embedding capital in a way that allows them to uh, uh, accelerate their business. And are your clients deciding to incorporate or implement these services to reduce energy for lighting, heat, heating, and cooling, re thus reducing their carbon emissions? Are they doing that to reduce their carbon emissions or are they doing that to save money on their energy bills? Johnson Controls does an annual survey of why corporate buyers buy clean energy. And for 20 years, don't hold me to that number, for a very long time, the number one reason to do it was uh, save money. Um, sustainability was not in the top 10. The last several years, I would say last three years, sustainability has been number one to meet their corporate sustainability goals. Um, reliability, uh, having on-site generation and, and needing less energy in your, in your facility uh, improves reliability and power quality. And the number three factor is sustainability. So that, that is a sea change in the ultimate buyer's motivation. It, um, virtually any investment in clean energy is going to save the user money. That's, that's kind of, the stuff is economic now. Mm. Um, but just because it's economic, that may not be enough for them to do the hard work it takes to um, uh, engineer and buy these, uh, this new equipment. But when you have a corporate sustainability goal that's driven by equity investors having ESG targets um, that these public companies have to hit, that's a powerful, powerful driver of the business. And ultimately, our clients benefit. They have more, more clients buying green energy, doing energy efficiency. And then ultimately, we benefit from having uh, uh, more and better investment opportunities. And the exciting part is people are continuing to beat the drum, getting this message out there. It's starting to resonate more, especially with investors. Have you seen an increase in impact investors, people focused on reaching these corporate sustainability goals, uh, meeting and applying their investing practices and principles to ESG? Have you seen an increase? In Absolutely. When we went public April of 2013, we, we had 66 IPO roadshow meetings. And at that time, they were all in person. Uh, we had one investor who cared about sustainability and sort of maybe right. um, uh, cared about it, at least wasn't uh, negative on it. Um, now, I would say two thirds of our investor base is uh, our institutional investors who have a sustainability mandate, um, who are producing superior returns from that sustainability mandate. We have very few people who don't care about climate. They may not be as uh, precise in the way they're investing, but they're certainly not investing in, uh, in us and coal companies. You're not going to find um, a, a common set of investors. Mm. So it has been very gratifying to see the change. And frankly, it started when the prior president exited the Paris uh, Climate Accord. And I think corporate America woke up and said, wow, government's not going to fix this. Mm. Government's going accelerating in exactly the wrong direction. 
and corporate America stepped up, corporate globally stepped up and said, we need uh, to uh, improve our supply chains, make sure that clean energy is all the way through. Um, and more recently, we need to uh, make sure we don't have slave labor in our uh, 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 supply chains and make sure this is uh, uh, this green revolution is as green as we hope it is. Companies are stepping up and a lot of people, uh, I know there's a lot of frustration with capitalism. I'm a capitalist. I see so many great corporate acts of good, solid citizenship. Um, yeah, there are some bad actors. There are in any business, but I am really impressed with the uh, uh, corporate commitments to sustainability. They're getting better, stronger, more sincere. I'd say started out with a little bit of greenwashing. We could check the box, do this, buy sure. some credits. It, that doesn't resonate with our investors. It doesn't resonate with our employees. Uh, it doesn't resonate with our customers. You've got to get real. So I guess that's why I'm on the show. And you mentioned a, a quick little note in there about employees. How does a focus on sustainable energy attract employees who have aligned values or attract employees with aligned purpose? You mentioned, you know, reading, going to page 82, seeing the soybean uh, use less energy, and I immediately became a vegetarian. Are you attracting employees and people who share a, a same or a common vision? Absolutely. I would say when we went public, it was, you know, uh, most of the team was, you know, supportive, um, but not passionate. Now we get resumes from, I call them kids, but um, young people out of school who say, I need to work for your company. Mm. Um, and these kids are all going to schools I could never have gotten into. And they're really, really smart people. And they've read all the books I've read, plus uh, hundreds more. Maybe they didn't read the books, they listened to podcasts, but anyways, they got the content. Um, so we have some, uh, yes, I, I think there are people who, um, you know, whether you work for Coke or Pepsi, yeah, that's not really a, uh, a mission question. If you want to work for Hannah Armstrong, you have, you believe climate change is a significant issue and one that you want to commit your career to, to solving. And thank goodness, because it is an enormous problem. And we need the next generation, the next generation, and the next generation after that to uh, to keep tackling it. We're nowhere close to uh, bending the curve on CO2 emissions. And what type of research is your team looking into when it comes to climate change? You mentioned the IPCC you know, panel on climate change, uh, who's coming out with new reports every year. COP26 is coming up. There's going to be sure. numerous uh, reports on what's going on in the world. What are you specifically looking at, especially for those individuals who don't see uh, the impact of climate change on a regular basis? Every quarter we do a, a, a group, a company meeting, and the agenda is what's going on. Um, and every quarter, everybody's been busy working on the quarter. We're a public company, we have to report. You know, it's very uh, inward focus. And then we take a step back and say, what's going on with climate change? What's going on with the world? What's going on with the country? What's going uh, on with the company, employees, et cetera? And I used to do the climate change piece um, and because uh, I love it. Now I don't have to do it. I 
every quarter we have volunteers say, oh, I want to do it this quarter. And I am uh, surprised uh, as anybody else in the audience as to um, uh, what they're going to present. It's been fascinating the range of resources that these presenters have cobbled together for for this presentation. It's about 15 minutes. Um, The level of sophistication. I mean, I'm learning. I've been doing this my whole life, and I'm learning every quarter from our team on where they're pulling data, uh, how they're analyzing the data, and we're while we're all uh, environmentalists and care about uh, uh, climate change, virtually everybody in this company does numbers, and um, we can be very skeptical of numbers. Um, and so I love the way um, the presenters you know, pick at the data and say, you know, here's where the bias is in this, but overall, here's the big picture. So I'm not giving you actual resources, but maybe we should start posting those climate presentations on our, on our website. Um, there's nothing proprietary about them, but they're really so well done um, as to uh, re-energize everybody for the next quarter. And Jeff, would I be remiss to say that all clean energies and all renewable energy uh, assets, let's say wind, solar, uh, you name it, whatever you are missed to say all of them are entirely positive, that they have no negative impact on society or the ecosystems around them? Oh, physics doesn't work that way, unfortunately. Um, there is no um, mm-hmm. uh, energy resource that has no negative impact. Right. It's a question of making choices of what's less bad. Um, but I would take it a different way. They're not all equally good either. Mm. Um, we use a metric called carbon count and, um, forgive me, I'll be a little wonkish here, but, um, if carbon counts and capital is scarce and our investors assure me that their capital is very scarce, we ought to be making the most impactful investments from a climate change standpoint. We've already said it's uh, got good risk-adjusted returns, but now how impactful is it on carbon? And location matters and technology matters. If you do a solar project in California, uh, that's it's good. Um, it saves carbon. There isn't that much carbon in the California power system, though, because it has become so green. Um, it's not as impactful. It'll have a relatively low carbon count. You do that same solar project in Ohio or New England, it's going to have a significantly higher um, carbon count metric. And I really think that's the next stage of investing. Hmm. And if we had a price on carbon, which um, someday, hopefully in my lifetime, we do, that's the missing piece to get markets to work. Um, This carbon count metric will reveal where people should be investing. Hmm. Um, Right now, it's sufficient to say it's not bad. I don't think we have enough time to say, well, my investments aren't bad. We need to focus on how do we actually aggressively decarbonize and not just the power sector, the transport sector, uh, ag and industry. I've had investors say to me, you know, ESG is almost like a, a risk lens. Uh, you know, it's, it's a great way to say, okay, this is how they are focused on the environment, reducing their carbon emissions. 
S, here's the kind of the messy middle with social and then governance, corporate governance. You know, how important is it to the actual leadership team you know, making these decisions? When you decided to take your company or I guess when your company decided to take Hannah Armstrong public, what were some of the conversations you all were having uh, in terms of the gap of funding that needed to be covered to actually make an impact on carbon reduction? Um, great question. Um, you could, there are estimates from Bloomberg New Energy Finance that we need $500 billion annually in the US alone to decarbonize. Um, and, you know, maybe a couple trillion annually mm. uh, uh, to, uh, to fully decarbonize and get to a one and a half or even a two degree scenario. So if we're investing a billion five or two billion, it's, it's not enough. Fortunately, we're not the only ones doing it. But the enormity of the problem requires uh, companies like us to scale. And I think one of the, perhaps the most important contribution we can make to this industry is proving our investment thesis, because it's going to take capital. Hmm. And successes in capital stories like Hannah Armstrong will produce more capital coming into the sector. And that's what we need. You know, a lot more capital. We need a lot of things, but um, it's going to be a very, very expensive problem to decarbonize. It's going to be way more expensive to not decarbonize. Mm. Um, the cost of climate change will be hideous compared to uh, uh, mitigating it. But, you know, I'm not at all Pollyannish that we're on the right path here. You had an interesting point about the last administration. <laughs> oh, yeah, just just one. That's it. You just okay. have one interesting point throughout this uh, these twenty five minutes now. Um, you made a point about the last administration, and then yeah, you know, kind of saying climate change isn't real, and corporations and boards and leaders saying we need to step up from the private sector. I find that to be very interesting because it's almost like the same thing with gun control. It's like when someone uh, a Democrat gets elected, gun sales go up. When Republican gets elected you know, climate sector goes up. I find that very, a very interesting topic. What trends do you see from this next administration or ensuing administrations about a carbon tax, about measuring the amounts of carbon that your company is contributing into this world? How big of an issue, Jeff, do you think this is going to be for politicians and for uh, business leaders that are not uh, measuring their carbon right now? I think President Biden has done an exemplary job in putting brilliant people in the right spots, starting with Janet Yellen at the, at the SEC, um, but certainly not limiting that. Uh, it is a first class group of very serious um, policy people who are not wasting any time to get to work. Um, so uh, hats off to uh, President Biden for this. Uh, I would have been happy with just not making things worse because the last four years were a little, little tough. Um, but what he and the administration has done is, is, uh, is truly significant. Um, the, you asked specifically about a price on carbon. The politics are tough, um, uh, but I think the history of US energy policies 
we'll try everything before we do the one tough thing that will actually work. Mm. Um, we've got a few more things we're going to try. They're not going to be as effective. Um, I'm not against them because you've got to do what you can do politically. Um, but someday there will be a price on carbon and it'll be meaningful. And um, my hope is there's a dividend uh, back to citizens with you know some um, lower income level to uh, to get at um, climate justice issues. Um, to me, it's it is one of the few revenue sources that has a chance to address two issues: climate change and uh, social justice. And uh, again, politics are hideous for any one of those issues. Combining two of them uh, may be too good of an idea to ever become reality. But if we're going to fix, not fix, if we're going to address both issues, uh, I, I know of no other better way. Being in this position and knowing a lot of certified B Corps that don't want to go public because of a, a fiduciary responsibility to maximize shareholder profits, do you share that same philosophy and as you know that decision maker um do you ever incorporate maximizing stakeholder value um so our investment thesis gets around the the b corp ceo problem of um i don't want to have to produce um to focus solely on returns because our investment thesis um is we'll make better returns we're not sacrificing anything mm. um and this isn't easy to do this. Um, um, it's we've produced a 25% annualized shareholder return over the last eight years. That's not um, well. It's it's not an accident. There's a lot of hard choices that get made along the way to uh, to have uh, investing success. Um, but we don't have that problem of uh, risking our business purpose for solely financial results and obviously last year with george floyd's murder um uh shouldn't have taken that particular black man's death to wake us all up but it uh, certainly woke me up um it turns out that employees who care about climate change they care about social justice too mm. and um it has really been gratifying to see our team come together in an expansion of the mission of finding that intersection of climate change and social justice. I, I can't say we found it and certainly would never say we fixed it, but we're working on the problem. And it was a very organic development within the team. Um, as a CEO, the best things are when you don't have to do anything and the team does it. And they get it pitch perfect and right. Um, this has just been brilliant. We've created a foundation um, that uh, is employee-led, that is is driving investment, um, again, at this intersection of climate change and social justice. It's very energizing for, the, the, for me and, and for the team. And our investors have appreciated it as well. Jeff, what would you, how would you describe like, your leadership style? It seems like you're pretty hands-off. You create this culture that's kind of running itself. You've been with the company for 30 years. What's worked for you in terms of a leadership perspective? I've worked for a number of um, bosses and uh, the ones who get employees excited. Um, you know, you set the vision, the, 
the course and you get everybody uh, buying into it, then get the hell out of our way. Um, uh, you know, there are things that our team does that I no longer could do, or no longer can do, probably never could do, um, uh, just from a skills level. But as long as we've got the, the mission and we're all on the same page and we have a very tight strategy, um, it's very easy to get distracted, to see a shiny object and think, well, that could be fun. Yeah, but if it doesn't fit the strategy, it's going to cost us multiples of whatever fun we got out of it. Um, so that is my job is to maintain the strategy and keep it going. And then um, when I interview people, I'm the worst interviewer because all of a sudden I'm the biggest cheerleader for the company and, you know, I ask them what they read and, and, you know, um, but it's, I think a, my enthusiasm for the mission uh, carries over uh, to a lot of them. And they say, you know, this is a place I, I think I can uh, uh, grow in. And if you give people some upside, um, my experience is they, they love it and they'll take it and uh, they'll do a fantastic job. Interesting. Now, how would you separate the roles of a leader versus the roles of a manager? Hmm. I'm not sure I can. Um, we have a, uh, a value, a set of values, um, uh, solve client problems, embrace collaboration, and ask good questions. And everybody in the company, I hope everybody in the company is repeating those core values. Mm -hmm. um, I know I do when I'm talking to investors, when I'm talking to our board, because they're my clients, uh, are our investors. We have actual, I actually talk to clients and I'm very focused on uh, solving their problem, uh, embracing collaboration and asking good questions and expecting to get asked good questions in return. If you do that, I don't see a distinction between a manager and a leader. Um, mm -hmm. Manager sounds a bit control oriented, which is uh, perhaps not, uh, not, not my style. Um, but yeah, if you're solving people's problems, um, the, there's, there's no cap on what you can do. How bullish are you on uh, identifying and restating those values? Like, what was the process you all went through to determine those three things? You mentioned solving client problems, asking good questions. How does one come up with those and then implement that uh, so it manifests within the company? Great question. Because I've been through these um, corporate mission statement exercises and value creation, and I I seriously want to open a beer because I just I can't bear them. It's just really tedious wordsmithing. Right. Um, and yet we put a group together and it was the most productive uh, session around this. And it was the coalition of the people who wanted us to write it down. There were mm. six of us, I think, um, that none of us were happy with it not getting written down. Uh, and I said, okay, let's get together. It was really, uh, it was three sessions and it was, and you know, when you get the words right, um, everybody's like, okay, done, stop. Uh, there's no debate, mm. but it was such a collaborative uh, uh Piece and now we have it on our mouse pad and all sorts of other places. Love that. Um, Love that. <laughs> but um, yeah, I've seen others that were not 
very inspiring. This was a really fun process. And we just had an issue with a client and I used these three values with uh, some of our team members to say, okay, if this client's not happy with this, what are we not doing right with these values? Because mm. if we're doing these three things right, we don't have a problem. Mm. Um, and they thought about it and said, hmm, I don't think I was solving their problem. I was solving my problem. Mm. Um, it's like, okay, now, now we know. So they've endured, which is always good. Because usually you do these values and you stick them up on a wall and nobody looks at them. Uh, uh, but we, we try to uh, build them into everything we do. I think it's really important. I think I love how you touched on that earlier uh, in, in response to a few of the leadership questions. Now I, I want to talk about um, how you're perceiving these values incorporating not into just your employees, but also into how they speak, how they deliver for their clients. Um, have you found in, in your history here a, a solid way to present or build relationships with clients versus, um, let's say, a competitor? Um, I think coming at uh, whether it's a competitor or a client, um, coming into a meeting with humility and an appreciation for uh, everybody's trying to do their best. And if you have somebody who's not trying to do their best or they're not trying to do good things, get out of the meeting. It's mm -hmm. not you're, you're in the wrong place. But if um, people are, are generally well-intentioned and earnest and they, everybody's got a problem, there's nothing easy about business. I'm still looking for the perfect transaction or the perfect company, uh, the perfect investment, and I'll never find it. Mm. The perfect employee doesn't exist. Everybody's got it some issue and and if you work to figure out what that is um you've at least got somebody who's not hostile to you um mm -hmm. because you were you know at least uh uh you know polite and uh you know manners count um and and i think it it, it is the same for competitors um uh i talked to a lot of our competitors i won't tell them a darn thing about our business um but we'll commiserate about, you know, some of the, the difficulties. Um, and I don't want anybody to fail. We, we need a lot of people in this industry. I don't want them to beat us. I want them to beat somebody else, but um, uh, everybody's trying their best. Mm. And if you come at it, it was a former CEO of Pepsi um, who had the phrase, assume good intent until proven otherwise. Mm. And if you come at it from that perspective, everybody's trying hard. Mm. Mm. I think bad intent, get out of the meeting. I love that. No, I love that. Trust comes on a bicycle and leaves on a Ferrari. Um, I, I'm interested also in just you all being pioneers in this space. Like not that many people, you know, I guess would, would take a, a chance or a risk on solar back probably when you were starting in terms of investors. Now you've, you've been a pioneer. You're a real leader in this sense. What is the current innovation that's out there that's been able to decrease the price has been able to measure the amount of carbon you're saving it's been able to uh, see how much you're saving on a month to month or on a daily basis what's exciting i guess in your space in terms of innovation to reduce costs and also increase efficiency 
solar and wind really became energy efficiency has been economic for decades. Solar and wind really became economic in the last decade. And it had to do with scale, supportive public policy, and really good um, uh, business skills by the solar and wind industry. It, it's not a hugely profitable business. They had to take costs out. They kept re-engineering, 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 and working, reworking their supply chain. Um, it's been a great success in global ingenuity and just like every other technology breakthrough, it had the same set of elements. Um, and, and now it's, you know, it's just astonishing the numbers that we see for clean energy power generation costs, uh, competitive in virtually all environments. The technology that is changing everything is storage. Mm. Problem with electricity is okay. um, it's an instantaneous um, resource. It's generated and used um, and precisely at that moment. Storage creates uh, the ability for wind and solar to uh, be more constructive 24 hours, 8,760 hours a year. And uh, on top of that, you have the digitalization of all technologies. Uh, virtually any new technology is better, faster, smarter, cheaper, more efficient than what it's replacing. Um, that's the digital revolution. And it's being applied to uh, the electric power sector, which really hasn't changed a whole lot in 150 years since Edison's first uh, central station power plant in New York. Mm. Um, but the, the, the rate of change is phenomenal um, in, in the industry. There's been more change in the last five years than in the previous 25 years of my career. It's exciting times. Uh, now, I know you all are chasing this thesis that you all set out for Hannon Armstrong. The question I have for you, Jeff, is even with these changes, you know, even you know, for someone that's out, I, I go out and I surf and I realize how powerful the ocean is and that I can't do anything about it. Is it fair to say or fair to even ask the question, even with all of these changes, are human beings still going, or are human beings going to be able to combat this beast called climate change? What are your thoughts on that? Oh, it's it's a question of how bad will it get. Okay. Um, it's a continuum. Um, I think we're pretty well locked in for one and a half degrees C change. Um, you know, two degrees would not shock me, um, but it can be a heck of a lot worse than that. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't really give in to the fatalistic. Uh, there's nothing I could do. I should, you know, uh, just fold up my tent and go home. Right. Um, yeah, no, get at it. Um, it's a tough problem, but your parents had tough problems or your grandparents had tough problems. Yeah, this is a phenomenal time to be alive and you've got one life, make a difference with it. I think that's a really strong, encouraging answer. And, uh, you know, relating it to your parents and there's no courage, you know, without fear. So Jeff, what's it going to take in terms of a leadership perspective? If we have the people to do this, we have the brightest minds, we have the, the, the best innovators who are reducing the cost, you know, they're doing everything they can, but what's it going to take to get everyone on board? Oh, I gave up um, hoping to get everybody on board <laughs> anything ever in my life. Um, True. <laughs> um, uh, Majorities count. Um, 
you know, I think fundamentally um, people don't like, I don't think people change, um, but economics changes behaviors. And I think what we've seen in the last five years should be extremely encouraging. Uh, the companies I talked about as our clients are some of the biggest um, industrial companies in the world. They are hotbeds of innovation right now. Um, state old centuries old companies are uh, inventing new stuff. This, this technology is going to be so cool um, and economic. So I, I, you know, I wouldn't be optimistic, but um, compared to what? We're not going to get to one and a half degrees C. Um, the developing world still needs way too much energy to get to a, a living standard that they deserve. Hmm. You know, uh, as the world gets hotter, people are going to want more air conditioning. That's just flat out the way it's going to work. Hmm. And from an equity standpoint, it should work that way. Hmm. Um, we're not going to have to do without technology. We'll have a long uh, or large contribution in um, maintaining a, uh, a living standard, but with far less economic cost. Go back to that bar chart when I was 17. Um, we're going to get the same gram of protein, but with a lot fewer uh, BTUs of energy. And that, that's happening now. Systems are getting more efficient, better, faster. Just got to happen a lot faster. Mm. It's a fair answer. And it's true. You cannot please everyone. Uh, learn the hard way from a leader. So Jeff Eckel, let's bring this home. You just gave a real answer to a tough question. Now, what is your definition? of a real leader? I'm going to give it in two, two aspects. When you're starting out your career, um, nobody says that young man or woman that has leadership potential. Um, we like the cut of his jib. Um, <laughs> nobody ever says that. Um, what happens is you start working on problems. You, when you identify problems, it's like, wow, I don't think that's supposed to work that way. And then you fix it. And you do that a few more times and people say, wow, I want to give that guy more problems. Mm. Um, and you start fixing that and all of a sudden you realize there are people who want to work with you um, and there are people who want to promote you. And it's like, eh, I wasn't leading anything. I just fixed problems. I think as you get the title um, uh, and the top job, uh, a absolute commitment to brutal honesty. Don't kid yourself. It's so easy and it's so poisonous to a culture if you're um, believing your own story. Ask good questions, even of yourself. Powerful. Especially of yourself. Powerful, Jeff. And on point today with today's discussion, appreciate you coming on this show today. For Jeff Eckel, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, fix problems, be brutally honest, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. All right, good people. And we hope you enjoyed that episode of the Realtors Podcast. Thanks for being here. Um, Jeff, I know you got to run here. Uh, do you have time to answer one of our questions that flew in from today's conversation? Sure. Okay, this one comes in from Julie and she asks, because we're a global society and the climate crisis affects us all, where do you see positive collaboration occurring for faster outcomes? 
where do you see positive collaboration? Is that the question? Yes. Where do you see positive collaboration occurring for faster outcomes? Oh, I think our industry is filled with it. Um, I just left a client meeting this morning where um, what they're doing, I had no idea that what they were doing and the, the scope of their ambition. They had no idea of our ability to, um, uh, that we'd made some of those mistakes already. Um, it, was, it was a fun conversation. Um, we both got smarter. That's happening every day in this industry. We've got, again, um, a little tougher with COVID, but um, fantastic collaboration in the industry. And it's going around globally. Um, early in my career, I spent uh, a lot of time in uh, uh, the developing world and they needed outside um, uh, innovation. Um, India and China don't need outside innovation. Now they've got fantastic engineering capabilities. So change is happening all over the globe. And Jeff, for people listening to this, they just listened to your story. They just listened to your message. How can they get involved? Where can they find more information about you or Hannah Armstrong? Uh, well, I always have to sell stock, of course, ticker symbol H-A-S-I. Um, and uh, uh, I am a large shareholder and um, invite you to join us. Um, listen to our quarterly earnings calls. We've got a ton of content on our website and um, there's we don't do a lot of press releases, but the occasional press release are, are good. But then um, if you really want to get um, schooled in uh, kind of the fundamentals, I recommend we've got a, um, a book club and it's on the website, a bunch of great titles that uh, team reads, reviews, and uh, discusses. And, you know, if you just pick off our, our um, uh, from our bookshelf, um, you're going to be able to get uh, a lot of content. All right, folks, well, you heard it here first. And if you missed this conversation or if you came in late, don't worry. This episode will be edited and released to all of our podcast platforms. That's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play. Any place that you like to listen to your podcast, this episode will be on in three to seven days. That's next week or the following. So, folks, hit that link in the chat box there. Subscribe to the Release Podcast and leave us a review. That's it for me. Thanks for being a leader, And always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Jeff. Hey, great questions, Kevin. Thank you. Take care. You did a very good job. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. And before we go today, I just want to make sure that you are all aware that we have now launched our new Real Leaders membership. If you want to get access to all of Real Leaders Magazine, private member-only events, and free courses online, hit the link in the show notes and enter in coupon code PODCAST20 to receive 20% off a 100 dollar a year subscription hit the link in the show notes enter in coupon code 
podcast 20 to receive access to all of real leaders to get you to the next level. Thanks for listening to this episode and always keep it real.